Hello and welcome back to Homefront. Binyamin Rose and myself, Gedali Gutentag, covering the Israel-Hamas war. Binyamin, hello to you. Gedali, hello to you. And once again, the big news this morning is the hostage deal. Correct. So the hostages are indeed where they've been the last few days, dominating the headlines, presumably for the next few days as well. But the biggest story around that's all people are talking about in the course of today, tomorrow, we may see pictures of hostages being reunited with families and however that will play out. But, but you know, there's a number of things we should talk about over here. We talked about in the, the international pressure and we're indeed starting to see signs of that. I mean, just have to glance around at the world newspaper headlines. I just pulled something off the Daily Telegraph center-right broadsheet in England this morning. So fragile ceasefire still could provide the mold for a longer peace. And then a real stunner of a subhead. Diplomats will be hoping that both Israel and Hamas realize they have little to gain from continuing on a war footing, which says it all, because we know that Hamas realizes little to gain from continuing on a war footing if it walks away at this stage, having just lost half of Gaza and have brought the Israeli army to a halt, then they indeed have won big. But Israel has everything to lose from ending this. It would be a resounding defeat if they do. And so you're starting to see when fairly friendly outlets like that are talking about that, this is going to be the mounting international pressure. And I just have to say that that this will be counterbalanced by the fact that people across Israel, and I've had these scattered conversations the last 24 hours with people from the right and from the left, and the Israeli public is very worried that this is this will bring the whole thing to a halt. But they, there's also a sense that we have no choice and therefore things were going to go on. And that's an initial reading of the situation. Gadalia, when you look at the pictures of the babies who have been taken captive on the different websites, you can't help but say this is a great deal because bring them home let them be safe, let them be with their mothers and fathers again, and let them grow up and hopefully get over this trauma. So in that respect, I'm all for it. If you look at the terms of the deal, the terms of the deal are very imbalanced. For every one hostage that we get back, we're letting out three prisoners. I understand that we're reportedly not letting out prisoners with blood on their hands, but I'm sorry to say that when you have uh, these summer camps and these military academies that these young people in Gaza and the Palestinian Authority have been attending. These are all future terrorists in training. We've made these deals many times before, and in the long term, they've backfired. So again, short term, I want to see these kids back, the women back, all the hostages back. Long term, it's worrisome. The other point I wanted to make is at the end, when the cabinet voted to support the deal, there were originally two parties that were very much against it. And as you would expect the National Zionist Party headed by Vitaly Smotrich and also Itamar Ben-Gavir's party. At the end, Smotrich's party came around. They voted for it. But when they were told that in the final analysis, the longest ceasefire that will be is 10 days. Because part of the deal is that for four days, we're going to get 50 or so hostages back. And then for every 10 additional hostages that Hamas releases. Probably another day. We'll have another day. But supposedly that's limited to 10 days. We're not going to let Hamas drag it out forever. And as a result, uh, uh, Smoke agreed to that. Ben Gavir looked at the long term, the uh, issue I mentioned earlier, that we've made these kind of deals before and they've worked very badly against us over the long term. I would just say in the final analysis, at least the way I looked at it right now, because I just gave two points. One is, yes, we're getting a lot of people back and Number two, it's limited to a certain period of time. At the end of the day, I don't know what's going to happen. Will the military campaign continue? Will the pressure that you mentioned build and uh, force us to take a step back? That's possible also. 
as long as we continue to maintain military control over the areas that we've captured in Gaza, and as long as uh, the war cabinet sticks to its guns and say that we're not going to uh, let Hamas uh, be in control, we're not going to let the Palestinian Authority uh, be over, and we are going to keep security, uh, responsibility for security, then there's a chance that the deal might end up being a positive in the long term. Now, and you know, I'm, I think as you say this, it's good analysis here. And there is room for optimism in one thing that I think has been ignored. Let me split this up into two points. One of them is called boots on the ground. We mustn't forget, we've not seen it. We've just seen partial pictures, right? But as we said yesterday, the former Mossad bigwig said that northern Gaza is now Dresden is flat. I read, by the way, Gadalia, that 50%, according to satellite photos, about 50% of the buildings in northern Gaza have suffered damage, some total damage, others significant damage. I can well believe it because we see the modus operandi, heavy use of artillery, airstrikes, etc., and we have no reason to endanger IDF soldiers to, to protect some masonry in Gaza. That has been the approach. So, so the, the, but one thing we mustn't forget is that northern Gaza is essentially the Israeli boots on the ground. In other words, when you've established control, that is a giant, giant bargaining chip because the Hamas is meant to be the sovereign of the Gaza Strip. It patently is not sovereign of the northern Gaza Strip. It's patently not sovereign of, of parts of the southern Gaza Strip. And it's painting the only sovereign of a few tunnels underneath the Gaza Strip. So in order to counterbalance that, this gives Israel a, a negotiating card, which is strong, which is perhaps not so acknowledged, although it's sitting there in plain sight. There's another thing, Benjamin, related to this. I think perhaps in all the microanalysis, we're forgetting some of the macro picture here, which is wars can utterly reset things, a geopolitical landscape. In one day of fighting, you can totally remake the whole strategic environment. And I don't think we yet appreciated fully the enormity of what Hamas has done uh, on October the 7th. It wasn't just humiliating Israel. It was what I'd see as putting the Palestinian question back at the center of world politics. That has reversed two decades or at least 10 years of work that Bibi, a strategic vision self-advanced, Bibi's central premise for years was that you could relegate the Palestinian question to the sidelines, that you can engage with the wider Arab world and they would do so on Israel's terms because Israel had a lot to offer. And you could keep the Palestinian question on the back burner. There would be occasional rounds of violence and occasional rounds of fighting in the internet, et cetera. And, and it was very, very unpleasant. But we had the Iron Dome. We had everything like that. That led to the breakthrough and the Abram became the Abram Accords and almost culminated, as we saw recently, with the opening towards Saudi Arabia. But what Hamas had done in one dramatic day and is to put the question back and say, no, this question is so big, it is now the center of, of everything. And therefore, what I mean by all of this is that Bibi, who is subject to international pressure, right? Even Yitzhak Shamir 30 years ago was drag kicking and screaming to the negotiating table by, and he was a far more pugnacious character than Bibi. Bibi is susceptible to pressure. And yet, Benjamin, he knows that if he doesn't trash Hamas, then Israel goes back 20 years and that's the current situation. If he wants to bring things back up to speed to where it was, he needs to show that Hamas no longer exists. And yes, the Palestinian question will not be solved through violence. And in fact, it's not the only question. Nagali, I'll just add uh, two points to what you said. First, uh, regarding Netanyahu, uh, this is a bit cynical, but as long as the military campaign goes on, Netanyahu's job is safe. Once the military campaign is over, even if we have a smashing victory, He's in serious trouble politically. Sure. Number two, you mentioned before about how a war has the ability to reset the turf. 
No, I would say that as much as you're correct in that, that this has brought the Palestinian issue back to the forefront, the facts on the ground is that there is more than a million people from Gaza displaced from the north. And as I mentioned earlier, 50% of the buildings have been damaged. I just don't see a practical way that these people are returning to their homes anytime in the near future, if at all. So there's going to have to be a big reset on the ground. And if that's the case, then we're going to have to look at other options for where these people can be resettled. I understand it's a very unpopular view. And uh, certainly no one in the Arab world uh, wants all these refugees and America doesn't want to talk about it. They'd rather have uh, the Palestinian Authority step in and take control. But uh, I just don't see it happening. There's nothing to take control of. It's like gutting a car and telling someone, okay, go drive it. It's not drivable anymore. So something's going to have to change. And uh, and I also want to mention one thing about resetting the turf. There are now uh, 189,000 Jewish Israelis who have been forced out of their homes, either in the South or in the North. And we have to figure out what we're going to do about them because a lot of the talk that I've heard from them is that many of them are saying, there's absolutely no way that I'm going back to uh, my former home or to live uh, where I used to live or how I used to live. So the devastation that this has wrought on uh, those people who live in the Southwest of Israel and also uh, on the Northern border, which uh, I've mentioned before, and I always say it's very close to my heart because I really love the Safon. That's my favorite part of the country, other than Yerushalayim, of course. I just don't see life returning to normal for them either. I wish I could end on a more positive note, but that's how things look right now. Yeah, but let me just tell you about yesterday. Yesterday, I encountered close up. One of these stories is flying under the radar just because of the coverage of the hostages. And there's so, so much misery over here. But I visited yesterday for an upcoming piece of writing that I'm doing. I spent the afternoon in Tel Ashomer uh, Hospital, in, known as Sheba Hospital, uh, as distinct from Shiva Hospital. And it has a wing there, it has an entire building, which is the IDF rehabilitation uh, unit. And in normal times, just rehabilitating IDF soldiers. But it, walking around the wards, you see there's dozens and dozens and dozens of amputees. And in one bed was a man who lost his wife and his daughter in Kibbutz Beiri. And next to him, there was this big surfboard to which someone had written or printed a picture of this lost the wife and daughter and had, had it the date, you know, 7, 10, 23. And the Hebrew words, we won't forget and we won't forgive. The bed next to him as a soldier who just a few weeks ago, he lost a leg. What's he doing? He was in a tank in the first week of the war on the northern border. Now, who knew that people were losing limbs? We know that people were seriously injured. But when you actually come and say yes, that when the news reports someone seriously injured, it means that this guy is a young guy, 21, 22, with just a stump of a leg, nothing left. The human face of what this war is so hard and so all-encompassing and so chilling to see that it's affecting so, so, so many people. There'll be hundreds and hundreds of families who will receive back a loved one who is maimed or crippled, either in the fighting or the hands of terrorists. But there is heroism and there's a deep, deep heroism when you go and talk to the mothers and the, and the fathers there, religious and secular, there's a deep faith. These people will be on the front lines and these people will be on the front lines for the rest of their lives. And there's Jewish heroism there, and I hope to be able to convey that. So, Benjamin, is there any last thoughts you want to share with us today, this morning? Gedalia will probably be hearing many more stories like that when the hostages come home. I understand that we're probably not going to get that much information right away because there are many hospital beds that have been reserved and prepared for them scattered around the country. There's, of course, a children's hospital at Schneider's that uh, the children will go to, and some of the people who are a little bit older will be placed in other uh, facilities so that they can recover. 
And only after uh, they've been deemed to be uh, sufficiently recovered will we have any sort of uh, debriefing going on. So first we're going Shabnak from the family reunions, but the difficult stories are going to come out later on. So we have to steal ourselves for both. Uh, there's always joy and there's always sar. And sometimes they come uh, one after the other. So there's a lot left to be said and a lot of blanks uh, to be filled in. Benjamin, on that suitably mixed feeling note, I wish you and the listeners a good day and we'll see you tomorrow.